Hey, welcome everybody to another edition of Legal Tech Week, the show in which we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation from the week that just happened. And uh, I am Bob Ambrogi. I serve as the moderator. I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, have a podcast called Law Next. And uh, we're very happy to have a special guest with us this week, Joshua Lennon, who is who is regularly on the sort of the other side of the camera. He's often in the audience for this show, uh, but he is marking his 10th anniversary working at Clio, which I don't know, apparently a legal tech company of some kind. I really haven't heard about it, but uh, and uh, so we thought it would be nice to let him come over onto this side of the camera and kind of share some of his thoughts and insights this week. So Joshua, welcome. Bob, thank you. It's it's really a big thrill to be here. I, as you said, yeah, I try to be here every week if I can, because I really admire and appreciate the work that everybody here does. And I also learn a lot from these sessions, right? Uh, new angles to the stories that we've all been reading or stories that I've missed and need to be caught up on. So I actually very much appreciate this session and try to be here as much as possible. That's great. Well, I'm going to come back to you because I had a couple of questions for you. But first, let's let's introduce who else is on the panel this week, starting from what looks like my upper left, Joe Patrice. Hey, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. And I am, you know, back for a week. I, I guess I was gone last week and I'll be gone next week. But like, you'll see me occasionally around here. Yeah. Actually, next week is the College of Law Practice Management meeting. I don't know if I'm going to. I'm still I think I may go to that, which so we may not have a we may not do this next week. But. Uh, Nikki? Uh, my name is Nikki Black. I'm the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software. I uh, write legal technology columns for uh, uh, Above the Law, ABA Journal, and the Rochester Daily Record. And I also create content. Uh, I focus a lot lately on um, some reports uh, on the my case side of things, too. Yeah. And also back from a bit of a hiatus, uh, we have a strict uh, parental leave rule around here. We only let people go away for a month when they uh, have a new child. But Victor, welcome back. Thank you, everyone. Good to be back. Um, uh, Victor Lee, Assistant Managing Editor with, for the ABA Journal, handling business of law and technology. And like I said to these guys, I tip my cap to all you parents out there. You know, I never realized what a tough job it is. <laughs> uh, I've only been doing it for like you know a week now, and uh, I'm. I, some days I don't even I don't even know my own name anymore. So uh, that intro that I sent out was actually scripted. So um, yeah, but that, but you know, good to be back. And uh, you know, uh, thanks thanks for the you know, you know thanks thanks for the well wishes. Yeah, well, it it I can I can say as someone who gets to look back on uh, back on back on parenting more than uh, have to deal with it in the present, it, it's it's the best thing you'll ever do, and it's, cherish every moment. Uh, and I don't say that just because my son is the editor of this podcast. I was just about <laughs> to say. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Steve Embry. Hi, Steve Embry. I write the blog uh, Tech Law Crossroads about legal innovation and technology. I'm also the chair of the ABA uh, Law Practice Division. And my only advice is uh, to follow up on what Bob just said. It's a wonderful thing, except between 13 and 21. <laughs> Not so good. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And the one in 13 isn't too good either. But uh, other than that, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I remember how I was as a, as a teenager. I'm like, man, if this kid is like me, I was like, oh, 
um all right well uh before we get to today's topics i did want to uh just uh joshua since you're here you're so you've you've been with cleo for 10 years which is kind of a a momentous thing given that cleo has only been around for what 14 15 years at this point so you were were pretty early so uh i'm now in like the top 10 of longest serving employees there which is a nice feeling uh, it's a bit sad at the same time from all the people who have come and like graduated to, to other great opportunities. And um, we're actually now like looking back and, and figuring out some of our wins and, and things that I contributed to and some of the things that were really awkward in those 10 year periods as well. Um, but there are a couple places where I've been posting content since everybody was listing theirs. Um, one of the pieces of content that I'm very proud to be a contributor to is the Legal Trends Report at Clio. And we've been doing it since 2016. It's really an in-depth data-driven look at the practice of law. And excitingly, we are announcing our 2022 version that'll come out in the beginning of October. And I get to present on that. So very, very deep in the weeds on that right now. Um, And a fun project I've been doing on the side lately is partnering with Greg Lambert from Three Geeks and the Law Blog. And we have a new podcast, the Superhuman Law Division, where we have been taking a look at um, superhero attorneys in the media with our current focus being She-Hulk, the new She-Hulk series, and breaking down uh, the inclusion of legal culture in the series, uh, which it's it's not there, to be perfectly honest. We haven't seen like Westlaw, we haven't seen Lexus, uh, we've seen Law 360. Law 360 did come up. Yeah, yeah, they had a podcast in there. Uh, and then we've been evaluating the lawyering in the series as well, uh, which I actually think could stand a little improvement as well. So if anybody knows the showrunner, send her my way. I'm happy to consult. Oh, oh and Greg That's just good. posted the link, superhumanlaw.com. On, you know, it's, yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting because I actually, I'm one of those folks who thought, I actually thought the old Netflix Daredevil series did a really good job with all its legal stuff. So it's interesting that this one has not done as well, though I do think the absolute best and most true to legal practice moment was from that series when she takes a stand that she wants to hire, she has to be able to hire her own paralegal and the partner goes, I literally could not care less, which was the most true to big law practice ever. Why would I care? I do think, yeah, Holloway's portrayal um, is interesting in the, why are you bothering me with any of this? Oh, uh, and that's very much the big law partner approach. Well, I, I'm trying to remember, I, I, I feel like I, I first met you maybe at a thing in Boston once. I remember meeting you at an event in Boston. I think it might have been one of the first times, if not the first time I ever met you. But uh, uh, over all these years, the one question I've been dying to ask you is, what the heck is a lawyer in residence? It's very much a made up title. Um, and the role has evolved greatly over the years. Um, and I think Nikki has a, a kind of a similar <laughs> role. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, And so it's jack of all trades. Originally, I was brought in to help with um, community and content and like really helping drive the just the discussion in kind of a public forum. But every day, all of these people would come to me with questions like, 
hey, we've got this feature. It does this actually do what you need? Or um, I would read something, say like a compliance thing that I know we, we would need to be prepared for. And I would turn to different teams and be like, let's let's figure this out. Or a sales guy would come and be like, we've got this huge account and I have no idea what this law firm does. Can you help me design a demo? And gradually the role just grew into, um, I describe it as I translate lawyers to technology and vice versa. But oftentimes that means that I'm an intrapreneur, really highlighting opportunities and key advantages that, that Clio can take, or I'm, I'm pointing out where we're falling short. And uh, I do drive-bys to different teams where I'm like, here's a problem, fix it. And then I run to my next issue. So it's a phenomenal role because I get the most interesting questions. Like, can a Swiss law firm use a data center in Ireland to meet their professional obligations when the Swiss law on advocacy is actually based in part on German data privacy law? And I get to like dig through all of those fun things. Um, and then in what addition was to the that, answer to that? <laughs> uh, they absolutely can. <laughs> Uh, because the Irish professional secrecy laws actually align with German professional secrecy laws under their data privacy law, such that a Swiss lawyer can reasonably rely on it. Uh, but if it were a U.S. data center, no, they absolutely could not. No. Right. So it's it's those are like fun, weird questions I get every day. What does a housing association lawyer do uh, and how do you help them with that? Cool. Uh, so, and then in addition get, to that, I get to be get really mad at get really mad at Karen for her plants being this inch too high is what a housing association lawyer does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, that's that's not a, an invalid example, right? Oh. Yeah. Uh, cool. And then I get to be an evangelist like Nikki, and I get to to speak with lawyers and bar association officials and legal media uh, uh, luminaries like yourself uh, to learn from what's going on in the industry and, and the exciting changes that we've been a part of for the last decade and longer. Uh, and so it's, it's been an amazing run and I'm very much looking forward to where it goes next, but lawyer and residence, it changes day to day. That sounds like a, sounds like an awesome job. Mm -hmm. uh, well, okay. So since you're our, our guest this week, we give you, we're going to give you honors uh, on uh, first dibs on telling us the story that you wanted to talk about and highlight. Absolutely. So let me grab the link. I'll throw it in the chat for everyone. Uh, and this is, I was going to talk about a different article, but Jordan Furlong published this one this morning. And I knew it had to be what I would chat about. And it is the fact that the Law Society of British Columbia, which is where I am right now, um, and they are the regulators of lawyers within the province, is going to research and implement a new licensing system that's based on competency, not credentials. And why I think this is an important news story is it actually shows how external pressure on law lawyer regulators is starting to generate change. So what, if nobody's following along from British Columbia, there are a couple of things you probably don't know. Um, one, it's Truth and Reconciliation Day, a federal holiday in Canada. And so I'll, I'll take the moment to acknowledge that I am coming to you from unceded Coast Salish people territory. And that's a very important legal concept for British Columbia. 
Uh, and so recognizing where I'm coming from and the impact that we have on that is something that I do want to include as part of the story. Uh, but second, there was a review by both the Attorney General, who is the ultimate regulator in the province, and the law society themselves that found that they were not really working in the public's interest. And so the Attorney General has now announced plans to totally revamp the regulatory authority of the law society. And he's going to mash together lawyer regulation, paralegal regulation, and notary regulation, just like smoosh it all together. And because of this, we see the law society is starting to really react on how do they avoid more re-regulation of their authority. And I think this is the direct response. So we're going to see that as external regulatory pressure bears down on the, um, the licensing of lawyers, we're going to see this shift away from just law school and bar exam being good enough and instead prove, prove that you're good enough to be a lawyer, be a competence-based licensing. And there are a couple of bits of resources that I, I wanna point out that have led up to this or can be researched further. Um, selfishly, I wanna highlight a 2014 talk I gave at LexThink, uh, which is a, an event put on by Matt Holman. And I think some, a lot of people were there. Victor, you were there, right? I was there. At ABA Tech Show, and so was Nikki. Everybody froze. Did I drop off? We're here. You froze too. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's that um, uh, Canadian internet. It's like slower. <sighs> well, I mean, it's measuring in metrics, so. Uh, and one of the oh, points I, I raised was that legal oh, education just You're isn't back. enough. You froze for a minute there, guys. And You're back. Am I now. back? You're back. Yep. Welcome back. You're sort of back. You're sort of back. You're sort of frozen, but there's a little more. froze again. <laughs> oh, there he is. Okay. There. He's back. Mm -hmm. Hi, where did I drop off? Um, uh, 2014. Lex, Nikki was there, <laughs> then he dropped off, I think. <laughs> yeah, and Nikki's there. Bob was there. Victor, I think you were there as well. Yeah, we were we were putting on we were, it was part of, it was like it was like a tech show like uh yeah it was it, yeah it was the the pre-party for ABA tech show that year yeah. and I gave this talk that I called all legal where I kind of just bashed legal academia and how they don't prepare lawyers for the practice of law and it's a theme that I've been continuing to take a look at uh I uh, worked with uh, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, Ali Gerkman, uh, if you all remember her, on their whole lawyer research and what are the real skills that lawyers need to adequately practice law, especially coming right out of law school or right when they first start. And it's great to see Jordan Furlong, his report and the Law Society really build on top of that research to show the competencies that they feel might be the right ones for licensing lawyers. Yeah, it's a fascinating, a really fascinating idea. And Jordan's post starts to go down this road of talking about, well, what does it even mean to be a competent lawyer? And 
what are the skills you have to have and and we've talked about that on this show a lot sort of in the context of technology competence but really uh what, what you're talking about in, in british columbia is the, the whole picture uh and uh, how do you define that uh, yeah and it's know. you know it strikes me that it's a difficult kind of a difficult thing to measure because competent when <laughs> i mean it's it would if you're a third year associate uh your expected level of competence is one thing if you're a 55 year old partner your expected level of competence is something else so I, I guess if it's sort of a competency minimum that you have to meet but that's kind of what we have now this doesn't seem to work very well so i don't that's uh, be interesting to see how it all plays out is that what we have now i feel like in the united states what we have now is are you capable of saying things that have nothing to do with your actual legal career at the moment you start it and then once you do you're done yeah, well, <laughs> i feel like that's our licensing i yeah, think our, our licensing is pretty well but competency bar granted showing yourself and then and then and then and then if you can do that and then you don't have any like you know skeletons in your closet during the uh character and ethics thing or whatever then you can do whatever you want in the legal industry which never never struck me as a very efficient uh way of doing things but um i, I guess I, I had a question for josh like, i mean just like oh. yeah like like how 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 would they measure um is it a case where it's like you measure in certain like every few years like you measure like a lawyer's competence or you look at their accomplishments or like like it, would it be every few years or would it just kind of be like okay after you graduate law school then you know you get evaluated as to whether or not you're capable or whatever and and then after that you pretty much have carte blanche to do whatever you want like like, like i, I guess that's definitely one of the questions raised by jordan right is under our current model we just presume competency as an ongoing thing right and the only way we really prevent uh the only way we deal with a lack of competency is by complaint uh, and the law society's own internal review found that they weren't doing preventative training on things that are coming up as complaints over and over and over again, right? So if um, you've got lawyers who are mishandling funds, why aren't we training and requiring lawyers to show that they know how to handle funds? And that's just like a hypothetical example, right? Uh, and so what it does is it takes a look at what are our past issues and competency then puts those as a bit of required knowledge in a preventative approach. Now, um, the task force is looking at it from a licensing perspective. So for newly entering lawyers, but I definitely think we'll see certain aspects of that will be now required, just like we're seeing like technology CLE being required in a couple of the states. Something I thought was interesting about, again, about Jordan's post is he talked about as one of the elements of competence is knowledge of the law. And then he lists out areas of the law in which lawyers should be knowledgeable, administrative law, business and corporate law, you know, contract law, constitutional law, criminal law, family law. I mean, the fact is lawyers these days aren't competent in all of those things. I mean, we're all specialists in one way or another. I mean, maybe we have to pretend to be competent in those things to pass the bar, but you know, God forbid I should have to take a criminal law matter because uh, I would not know you know, square one of, of what to do and the poor person would go to jail. Uh, so, I mean, I, I wonder if that's something that needs to be accounted for in defining competence, that the fact that, it, you know, the reality is we are not, we are competent in what we do, but we aren't, well, we try to be, but we're not expected to really ex even expected to be competent in the law as a generic thing. 
Yeah, I think uh, I do want to raise that in context to the the regulatory review that I mentioned from the Attorney General and the Ministry of Justice in BC, right, where they are going to be taking a look at licensing paralegals now. Um, and we already have kind of a notary license, but it's not the same thing. Uh, and I think what you're going to see is those will be a lot more focused in terms of what they can approach and handle and uh, notaries for real estate paralegals for family law um, and lawyers are going to be the equivalent of doctors in the healthcare system where you get the the md and then you go on and specialize on top of that to be a surgeon for example or a pediatrician mm -hmm. uh, and i think that's going to be kind of the equivalent approach lawyers will have broad general knowledge of the law and then start to build these focused specialties yeah um you know, it's it's funny because you said that uh, you think that this you, you're this is evidence that that pressure on on lawyer regulators is starting to generate change, uh, but both Joe and I and maybe some others on on the call have talked wrote this week about a story which seems to suggest <laughs> which which points to the, the the kind of the hypocrisy of the fact that that's not happening in the United States. There was a, a, a study uh, published this week out of Stanford Law School that kind of took a hard look at the data coming out of these, uh, you know, ex experiments in, in deregulation or, or regulatory reform or whatever you want to call them in Arizona and Utah. Uh, and, uh, you know, found that, uh, in fact, they uh, actually are having the effect of driving innovation in law. And uh, from the evidence so far, there's absolutely no, uh, no uh, evidence that this is having any kind of a negative impact on consumers uh and in, in fact in utah there seems to be evidence that it is in fact helping to drive uh access to justice and help close the justice gap a little bit there um uh so uh and, and yet uh you know regulators in the other 48 states in the united states uh i mean they, i shouldn't i shouldn't say that because some of them are making some movement on this but uh very very slow progress in the united states joe what was your headline you had a good headline on, on yours but oh yeah no um that was not the one that i was gonna go with so oh. give me a second to find it oh I've got um it let's see wait a minute i've got it uh, don't i have it here oh stanford law uh no no let's see um no that was hmm yeah i don't have it here in front of me now either i had it yeah, no, we can talk about your other story too, but but I know you wrote about that yeah. one. But um, uh, but I mean, you know, yours was something like, despite the evidence, uh, um, everybody's. Uh, I, I forget how you word. Yeah, no, I got it. I I got it here in a second. Just legal reforms in Utah and Arizona made law better, so obviously no one is following their lead. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad to see progress in British Columbia, and yet uh, in in uh, so many places in the United States, we're we're just seeing it. And of course, in California, we've been seeing active resistance to to these kinds of reforms. So hopefully, this study out of Stanford helps drive forward some progress in the United States, like like you guys are seeing uh, in Canada. Um, I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> yeah, well, none of us are holding our breaths right now. It's too bad. Um, 
So what there was actually, what were you going to talk about, Joe? Because there was this kind of a theme here this week, right? Oh, no, no, you had the great story. All right. Well, maybe before we get to your story, Joe, because it was like a, there was a theme uh, of, of uh, a couple of different stories uh, involving uh, this question of, of working remotely uh, and uh, uh, the, the 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 connection was so Nikki you've got a story you had a story on uh, uh, working remotely and then Steve you had a story on sort of the sense of entitlement uh, that, that lawyers are getting that are kind of they're kind of connected to each other in some ways but uh, I don't know Nikki yeah. you want to start well, by talking they're, about they're your... sort of they're sort yeah. of connected to the to the Arizona and Utah because everybody wants to work remotely and can work remotely so we're not going to let them do it <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah. But, Sorry, Nikki. Once yeah. again, I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't even start talking, so I don't think technically yeah. it was an interruption. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but would you directed that at me, though? Um, what I had. Uh, yeah, I was saying, why don't you talk about the the story okay. that you were gonna? I, I know you've got a couple of different stories you want to talk about this week. Yeah, well, I had that. two, and they're really related, right? Like, they're um, one of them is um, an article that I wrote um, for Above the Law, and then the other one is. Um, an ABA journal article that caught my eye that also related to remote work basically. So um, let me post them both in the chat. All right. I just put up yeah. the ABA one. Right here, I got the other one here. Um, oh no, I don't have the ABA one. Can you do that for me? I put the ABA <laughs> um, one in, yeah. Okay, I don't know. Uh, so I've got, the other, I've got your other one here too. Okay, all right. So basically my above the law column was about um, uh, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. I think I'm saying his last. I always is that correct? He's in our audience today, so he can yeah, tell okay. you if we wrong. <laughs> um, I uh, I'm pretty sure that's how you correctly say his name. Um, I wrote a uh, review of um, it's a new edition of a, a sort of long running book that they have at the ABA that focuses on collaboration tools for lawyers, and um, it's you know it's a great book, and it's I, I think it's the update's really timely because the pandemic really um, forced lawyers to use these collaboration tools in order to stay operable during the um, pandemic because of social distancing regulations and requirements. And so, you know, there's a ton of information there. It, uh, you know, in my review, I cover how it, you know, runs the gamut of, um, you know, from start to finish in terms of all the different types of um, tools you need and some suggestions on implementing them in your firm and making choices that work best for your firm. So it's a great book. And I was also super excited because I was asked to write a little blurb for the back of the book. So it's always kind of cool to see your, um, your blurb on the back of someone else's book. And I love it when that happens um, in the legal tech space um, because my passion at the end of the day has really just always been helping lawyers to learn how to use tech. And this book is a great tool in that respect. Um, so, was the one that said this book sucks and don't buy it? Was that the blurb you wrote? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, that's exactly what it said. They're like, let's put this on the book. Good idea. <laughs> um, but I, it's sort of, um, I mean, so that's a book review and I recommend the book. It's really a very great tool. And these guys are, uh, we're doing the legal tech stuff long before I entered this 15, whatever, 16 years ago. These guys have been doing it forever and they have a great podcast and they're really knowledgeable. So it's a great book. Um, and then the, what caught my eye also was this ABA journal article um, that is about a report that talked about the shifts in the practice of law caused by the pandemic and the rise of remote work. And, you know, it, it, it was really interesting to read a bunch of the statistics about that in part 
um, because that report has a ton of informa uh, great data. And I'm also in the process of analyzing and writing the uh, my cases report. And I asked a bunch of questions in my survey about um, remote work and what law firms are doing as we're sort of hopefully knock on wood heading out of the tail end of this pandemic. And so um, I think it'll be really interesting to see where we end up because there's so much conflict and friction right now in terms of um, what the managing partners and the heads of corporations want in terms of remote work and what everybody else that works for them wants in terms of remote work. And um, especially for the working parents that were able to get a lot of this flexibility and still get all their work done. And um, it's clear that productivity wasn't really affected by working remotely and in some cases actually improved. So it's just interesting that there's still all this friction and hopefully in about a year, we'll have a better sense of where we all ended up on this. But all the studies are showing that it went really well <laughs> and we should be able to continue to keep doing it. But uh, it affects workplace culture. And so at least that's what some people think. So time will tell where we actually end up on that. But the tools are there to facilitate it and their book's a great, if you're a lawyer looking to do that, that book's a great resource. So yeah, the, the story's, I mean, the story's really interesting. The ABA story, I mean, leads leads with the saying that the lead sentence says, young lawyers feel so strongly about remote work that 44% of them would leave their current jobs for a greater ability to work remotely elsewhere, uh, according to the survey. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I uh absolutely I'd like to put a quick plug in for the for the book as well. I read it and it's it's a very thorough and very enjoyable and there was a there was a question that they asked in the book toward the end that I thought was a really um sort of interesting question and it, and it was aren't collaboration tools logically leading us toward virtual law firms. And I thought that's kind of a perceptive comment because I think uh should be <laughs> are they in light of the you know in light of the fact that there's this growing divide between management and and uh, the workers in law firms where management thinks you have to be in the office a office a place where you can be watched and monitored make sure you're working <laughs> yeah well and you that was one of your one of the stories you had this week was an example yeah. of that yeah, it was the question was raised, you know, are the are the younger lawyers, it didn't, I guess it didn't exactly say younger lawyers, but uh, do they have a sense of entitlement because they don't, they want to work remotely, they don't want to work 2400 hours a year, they want to have a life, and they don't want to be berated by partners that think that they're, they know everything and uh, associates don't, can, I can't imagine why people think that's a sense of entitlement, but um so yeah, and then uh, you know we're starting to see um, various law firms demanding that people be in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, irrespective of whether that makes any logical sense whatsoever. Uh, you know the, the the firms that are doing that are these these large firms who hire associates that somehow managed to get themselves through law school, graduate in the top of the class, get hired by the most prestigious law firms in the land, do excellent work while they're working at home. Yet we really need to watch them more carefully because obviously they're slackers. Uh, followed by, well, you know, they need to be in the office so they can be imbibed with this culture that we, that we have that's so wonderful. And we wanna make sure that they're trained properly uh when in fact you know in most law firms the training program is catch as catch can and uh if you get to work for a good partner that's really wants to be a mentor uh 
typically that means that you work for a partner that you sort of look like in terms of uh, education, color, race, ethnicity, and all of that. And then you have a good training experience, but if you don't, then you know you're you're s out of luck most of the time. Um, but just one more comment while, while I'm on it. The, the, there was a really interesting article in Bloomberg today um, following this. And the, the article was making the point that, um, you know, we had this, this glut of work roll through law firms where they were desperately needed associates to do the work. Um, and so they were willing to, to allow certain flexibility and, and, and grant, you know, the associates what they kind of wanted. Uh, now that that glut may be drying up, uh, the article makes the point that there are associates who fear that working from remotely, working from home uh, too much may jeopardize their uh, partnership track, or if there are layoffs, they may ultimately be one of the laid off associates because they don't show up at the office. So, you know, once again, it's the actual law of supply and, and demand um, that uh, that may be con controlling all of this. I I'll put a link to that Bloomberg article in the, in the chat so people can have it. So anyway, that was, I thought all of that's kind of coming to a head at the same time. Oh, I was just going to say real quick that the uh, the when you talk about the training and how bad training programs are, that's a thing that I've talked about a lot too. But one. I feel like I'm one of those people who likes going back to the office as a training matter, not because I think there's formal training uh, that works well, but that there's like soft learning that happens where like most of the learning I had was when I did something in front of a fourth year who would go, wait a minute, why the hell are you dumb enough to do that? Uh, and that's the thing that only would happen if I was in the same room with them. Yeah. Good, uh, I raise a point as well. Um, one of the things that we're, we're entering into is kind of an, an evening of knowledge disbursement. So a lot of younger associates would go into a law firm and they wouldn't know anything about the practice of law or how things were done in other law firms. And what we're seeing now amongst these younger lawyers is they have a culture outside of the law firm with other law students and other people uh, via social media. And so there is this whole knowledge layer of Gen Z social media forward lawyers who are sharing and learning from each other in addition to what they're experiencing within their law firm. And I don't think a lot of law firm leaders are recognizing that this disparity of knowledge is now starting to be rectified. And so, yeah, Stephen, the article asks, are these lawyers entitled? I think no. I think they're informed and because of being informed, they can start advocating for things that are working in other law firms that might not be existing in their own. Well, those are really great points, um, especially the idea that they're learning online um, is absolutely happening with these, uh, with the younger generations. And it was happening before the pandemic too. But what always frustrates me about the, um, arguments against remote work and all this face, this FaceTime concept is that when I was in a law firm, you know, you'd get there at seven in the morning because the partners would get there so early and the partners were like, 
had their feet kicked up on their desk and were reading the New York Times. You know, they'd get there at seven in the morning and they'd spend an hour reading the New York Times. And then they'd go out and smoke on the verandas, what they called it. It was just like the fire escape <laughs> with a bunch of partners for another half hour and like, you know, shoot the shit. And then like spend like then they'd all get coffee. Like, I mean, it was a lot of it was I mean, I'm not saying these partners were not doing a lot of work, too. But a lot of this FaceTime was really just socializing. And, you know, it's sometimes it'd be hard as an associate to actually find some time to get in their office when they weren't working or talking to all the other partners, you know. So the I think that part of it is that they enjoy that, that especially the older generation, they enjoy that aspect of being a partner in a firm and having their colleagues around and spending time with them. And honestly, and I've said this before, I think that there's some men that just like to get out of the house at seven when they've got the little kids at home. Victor might be able to relate to this. <laughs> right about now. Next, <laughs> next time we do this, Victor will be in his office. Yeah, yeah you know, I'll be, I, like, uh, I'll be like, yeah, I decided I'm going back to work. Uh, but um, I'm not. You know, know, to I, kind of pick up on Nikki's, Nikki's thread, it's just kind of like, you know, whereas, yeah, like you talk about like people, like, you know, with their whatever, their lunchtime martini, their, their, their three lunch martinis or whatever, or their cigar smoking and whatnot, you know, whereas like something might look at that as just, okay, old boys club, they would look at it and be like, okay, well, this is our culture. This is, this is, this is what makes our firm so wonderful as opposed to all the other firms that are just like us, but you know, not because we're better. So, you know, it, it, that's the thing. And from the beginning, I, I, I was skeptical as to whether or not, you know, um, the remote, uh, you know, the remote trend would continue just because, you know, at the end of the day, law firms, you know, really, I mean, especially the big ones, really guard their culture and they really value it. And it was always going to be easier to be like, okay, let's call everyone back in and, you know, do things the way we used to just as a way of maintaining that whatever culture that was, as opposed to adapting for, you know, a new, a new era or changing the way you do things or, you know, making, making, making uh, adjustments for people and whatnot. So it was always just going to be easier to do that. And, and, and we're seeing, and, and to be fair, we're seeing that in all, in, in all other industries, not just the law. I mean, you know, like, 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 like we're starting to be called in, uh, you know, at my, at my office, we're, they're starting to call us in more often. So it just, it's, 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 it, it, I think it was always going to be easier to default back to what we know, as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, just, yeah, like, 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 you know, changing with, uh, with the times and whatnot. And, yeah, uh, what is that culture? I'm not, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, I don't mean to sound like I'm ignoring the benefits of people being together in the office. And to, but to me, that's sort of the, the, the problem is um, you have a, a, a giant law firm with all different kinds of practice groups, all different kinds of matters, all different kinds of work that needs to be done, some of which can be done remotely. 90% of the time. And then, you know, despite all these various uh, types of work processes going on, you and you tell all the associates, by God, you're going to be here Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, you know, we have Sam's or butts, instead of saying, well, you're grown up men and women, you've proven yourself, make the appropriate decision to be at the office when you need to be at the office. Why is that so, you know, why is that so ungodly? It, it's such an ungodly blasphemous thing to think about. And I think it, it kind of goes to sort of the hierarchical nature of law firms where you had partners able to control the lives of associates and they don't want to give it up. Um, so sorry, Bob, I, this time I interrupted you. <laughs> well, no, that, that's okay. I was just going to say, I mean, to, to Victor's point about, about 
law firm culture. I mean, it comes down to what kind of culture do you want to have in a firm and how do you want to define that culture? I, I just, uh, on Monday, I'll be posting, I think, a podcast I recorded this week with this uh, law firm, Vela Wood. I know, Joe, you've written about them before, but they're the ones who just sent their entire office to Portugal for a month this this summer. Um, and, you know, their, their whole culture, is the way they define their culture is, you know, where one where they really want that balance in work-life balance. And it's not that they're not telling people not to come in the office, but they want people to have lives beyond the office. They intentionally have a low billable hours requirement. They encourage individual employees to just go travel and work from wherever uh, and help them do that financially. You know, they, they literally paid for, I think it ended up being half their office to go to Portugal. Uh, they would have sent more, they just didn't all want to go. Uh, uh, with, it, with I guess with a nod to Joshua, they have they use Clio, <laughs> which is partly what enabled them to do that. But, I mean, they have lots of there are a couple of things I know software. under under embargo. Okay, uh, okay, about that story. So okay, uh, I right. can't share right now. But there's more. Right. But, but but we might yeah. hear more over the next couple of weeks. I take it no. uh, when when in case Clio has a conference somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I mean, again, it's just you know, and they're and they're saying part of their culture is they want their staff to be citizens of the world. They want them to be part of the broader community around them and the broader world around them as part of their culture. So, you know, I think that's a really important, you know, when, when law, lawyers talk about having to have, you come, got to come in the office because it's our culture. Uh, culture is what you, what, how you when, define it. When that, when that story got pitched to me, by the way, I was uh, told, oh, you know, they're a Clio customer. And I was like, yeah, I know. Because every single YouTube video I ever open begins because the algorithm knows me begins with either telling me their story or that patrick palace does yoga it's <laughs> one of the two every youtube video i open have you seen yeah. how flexible yeah. that man is yeah why would we not highlight that you need to put ad blockers on your browser it's youtube it's how youtube works yeah you get those ads anyway i think I want to raise two things about the culture. Uh, the first is something Greg Lambert said to me this week. Uh, and he said, if it, a law office is big enough to have multiple locations, they have multiple cultures. And so, you know, the New York office and the Miami office and the Atlanta office are all going to have different cultures. And so to have a, a company-wide policy on these things, much like Stephen said, by, by practice area or, or by practice group, doesn't always make sense. And so, uh, and the second is they're ignoring that there are other cultures at play here, right? Um, and it might be the social media that I mentioned before. It might be the identity-based bar associations that a person might be a part of, right? Um, it could be the, the personal lifestyles of the lawyers. And so there is a culture clash happening. And to ignore that, whether within the law firm's own culture between their offices or their practice groups or with the, the greater cultural changes that we see around us. Uh, I don't think this is an entitlement thing. I think it's it's a bit of conflict and we need to find resolution to it, which is what this industry is supposed to be good at. I think, I think Greg makes a great point in the chat. He says culture is the worst behavior of the rainmakers that a law firm is willing to tolerate. And that's certainly been my experience over the years as well. Fire this week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also such a, 
I don't know. Is it is this just a big firm story? Is this is this an issue for smaller firms, or, or are we just talking about big firms here? I don't know. Uh, I, I can raise another story. So uh, Bill Henderson in Legal Evolution just posted um, that he's redoing his class on law firms, right? And so he, he's posting some lessons about what he's learned in the last 20 years. And one of the law firms he highlighted is, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Paganelli Law Group. Um, did you guys read this one? No. So uh, Paganelli Law Group, uh, a relatively small firm. I think they have uh, 18 lawyers. Yeah. And some of the things that he does is if he finds that a, a, the projected uh, workload of a of a group of lawyers of the practice group is greater than like 125 hours a month. He just starts hiring for that law group, right? So I don't think this is a big law story. I think it is um, a management story, and Tony Paganelli has got it right. You can get this work life balance, just like Vela is another example of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I agree. It's not a, not just a big firm uh, story. They they get the publicity, but it, it, smaller firms, you know, that I can't tell you how many managing partners at smaller firms have said to me that we just have to get the people back in the office. We just can't tolerate this any longer. Blah, 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 blah. And so it's uh, you know, there are smaller firms that are able to do it and do it successfully, but. Um, and there's still a great hue and cry at the mid-sized and small firm level. This needs to, you need to be back in your, your butt needs to be in the seat. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting to me that it, the cry is coming from there. And obviously the New York market, which is the only one that I've ever practiced in is a little bit different, but out in the city, the small and medium firms are the ones who might not need that because they don't hire people directly out of law school. They wait until somebody spent three or four years in a big firm getting the training and then they bring them in and they get the reap the benefits of somebody who already knows what they're doing. So they don't need that. Uh, and so I feel like it, in the New York area, the boutiques are going to be much more amenable to the remote than even the big law can be. Yeah. Well, uh, I was glad that you brought up YouTube because it was going to be the only possible transition I had to Victor's story this week, uh, which is about TikTok. Yeah, so so well, this is probably more for Nikki than anyone else because uh, you know, I mean, my the extent of my the extent of my TikTok involvement is uh, is watching videos of dogs. Um, so uh, you know, I, I've made a couple, but they're not so good. So you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna plug them here, even though I kind of just did. But uh, but anyways, yeah, it, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting. I guess you know it's uh, you know TikTok, obviously Chinese company. You know there were questions about its uh, about na about national security issues, privacy issues, and things like that. And you know I guess um, you know like I mean uh, the previous president tried to ban tried to ban them and then backed off because you know. Uh, but then um, you know so now uh, you know uh, you know they're working out a deal with the Biden administration so that they can remain uh, operating in the United States. You know obviously with with some caveats they have to. Um, you know, uh, silo off their data, keep all the data. Well, keep the keep their data, American data, on American soil, so it doesn't. So you know, it lessens the national security issue. Um, you know, they have to um, um, block block Chinese propaganda or dis disinformation campaigns. You know, we'll see how see how effective that is. Um, and then uh, you know, providing some oversight of you know from uh, with you know people 
border security experts that oversee U.S. operations and report directly to the U.S. government. So it's just asserting some more control over over the platform, which you know I don't I don't know if that's necessarily going to help or not. But I guess it's it's an important symbolic um, move at the very least, and it does address some some issues. You know, and, and politically, it's a it, it's a winner for the government, obviously, because you know any any time you can show. Um, you know that you're that you're that you're cracking down on on you know communist China and and you know trying to you know buffer buffer national security you know uh, and whatnot. It's always you know it, it's always a, it's always a good thing as a winner as far as politically. So, but otherwise, just because I mean, just 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 the sheer mass of it. I mean, I think I think a lot of people were saying that you know it was it had become almost too big to fail. Like it was kind of like well, okay, yeah, you know, despite what the government wants to do. You know, you could argue that TikTok had become so big that, um, you know, that there that something like this was always going to be in the offing where they were going to try to work things out so that there wouldn't be a huge disruption. But then the, the other the other thing was that well, okay, yeah, but so what if TikTok goes away? Instagram, Facebook, all these other all these other you know groups have similar interfaces that they could just put in to to to, to fill the gap. And who knows, you know, you know, given the way social media is, what's what, what's hot today is, is is out the door like in, in a few months so who knows how much longer they have anyway so it's just there are a lot of interesting moving parts to it like i thought it was interesting and, and, and worth keeping an eye on and and it was uh just yeah something that that, that, that it's something i hadn't thought about in a while and then all of a sudden you know the story came up and i, I thought it was interesting well I, I think it's really interesting that they did that but i agree with you 100 percent that it is like it's really just a pr play it's kind of like the dei announcements out of law firms right like they this it sounds good but it really doesn't do anything because i'm convinced spent i spent a decent amount of time on TikTok, that what they're really doing is it's social and political engineering right like what they're doing is they're creating divisiveness within you know they're, they're figuring out your sweet spot like what is it that's going to really piss you off in your culture and that's and they serve you those ads up intermixed with dogs and whatever other goofy things you like. But I'm convinced that whatever it is that's going to really piss you off about your culture and everybody else around you, you get those videos regularly. And it's just like what they um, <clears throat> Russia did during the elections, you know, trying to create all this divisiveness between different races and men and women. And I mean, because like at this point. I think I'm like a lesbian after watching TikTok all the time. All I ever get is like lesbian videos, you know, like an angry men, you know, men are horrible. You know, I'm surprised <laughs> I'm even talking to the rest of you at this point. <laughs> but like, they've definitely figured out that my trigger is I'm a feminist and they're giving me like hard left feminist stuff. So, <laughs> but you know, like they figure out exactly what's going to make you angry and they serve that up and they do a really good job at it. like they've made me think about certain aspects of feminism these videos that i never really quite noticed before and my poor husband's born the brunt of some of this I'm like you do this you know so like i'm convinced that this is what tiktok's really doing so all of these different well, um rules i would come. like i would like to think saying good things about women's rights is not a weird like division campaign by a foreign power or something <laughs> No, like I, I feel like that's just a good thing. But they're not giving it. They're, they're, but the thing is that they're not saying, "Oh, let's educate everybody on our platform about women's rights." No, like if you show a glean of interest in something right, you end up completely. It, it's all like ex incel stuff. You know what I mean? Like so, it, they're not telling everyone about women's rights or everyone. You know, it's they're trying to find what's going to piss you off as a person and divide you the most from the people around you. Um, and I'm convinced that because I asked my husband, like, what do you get? And he gets like very left stuff. Uh, and then he gets like chest stuff. And I don't know. 
but you know, like they find the thing that's going to make you mad and they serve that up to you. And I think that the intent is to create divisiveness and to polarize people. And I think they're doing the exact same thing that the um, Russians did during the elections. We know there are whistleblowers out of Facebook and Google who have uh, talked about uh, Facebook's experiments to do mood control, right? Can we can we like guide somebody from happy to depressed or vice versa, uh, based on al algorithmic choice of the posts that they see? And Google has done their own research that shows that their uh, video recommendation algorithm uh, tends to skew towards radicalization, uh, mostly on the right wing side. Uh, and and yet they haven't taken these steps to necessarily mitigate that. In fact, that um, they might just be leveraging it more and more is is my own personal uh, fear. So I don't think it's just TikTok. I think we really need to worry about um, kind of the bubbles and choices that are being made and formed around us and how we deal with those. On the other hand, when I get out of my bubble on Twitter, it's a really weird, scary place. So. No. So I uh, today's today's article for me is I made a comment that was entirely factual and really unassailable uh, the other day about just like counting and linear time. And I have spent two days worth of gun nuts going wildly after me about making a not even like an aggressive stance, just like a observational stance about guns so yeah it gets it gets interesting outside of that bubble what was the study that came out just this week on linkedin uh doing sort of the social experimenting with uh the algorithm in terms of how it how it makes people you may know recommendations uh and they were experimenting with sort of different ways of doing that so depending on what groups you were in in the linkedin experiment you would get different kinds of recommendations, which, I mean, the, the point of the, the study was saying, I mean, this, this could ultimately have affected your career or your job search or whatever else, depending on what kinds of recommendations and connections you were getting as a result of that. So they're all playing with us. It's all part of that big. Uh... It's unsettling. Because yep. they, they get you riled up. I think I'm in a perfectly fine mood. And then I start like on TikTok. And the next thing I know, I'm really mad at like, some social situation or men or my husband i'm like he's over there reading a book like he didn't even do anything <laughs> I'm like, yeah really i at him for something <laughs> a while ago i got really mad on TikTok. i saw this this person who kept making cocktails and talking about legal tech I, no i'm making no. <laughs> out soon uh soon victor's dog like videos will be person. replaced with baby videos <laughs> <laughs> is this is this true the comment in the in the chat uh from kate giordano that the rumor the social media crew at the aba is going to be putting more resources into TikTok. any any truth to that rumor victor uh well okay um they they're a separate entity for well separate entity but they're they're, they're they're a separate department from the journal um i wouldn't be surprised uh you know i i have worked with this with the social media folks before and they're always looking for you know to go to go they're always looking to go where the people are and you know, young younger generations of people, for better or worse, are on TikTok. So it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I mean, hopefully we won't be producing any like QAnon type stuff. But um, if so, you know, I apologize. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else good of the order before we disband for the week? We will be uh, some of us. I don't know. I may go to COLPM this week in Boston. And then we're all, a bunch of us are the Clio. Victor, you're not going to Clio, are you? 
uh, my reporter's going, so so he's gonna uh, he'll be there, going. and then uh, he'll go. I, I think he's gonna go to the award show. I know. Uh, you know, we're still trying to figure out what the dress code is on that one. Uh, you know, yeah, actually, that's a great question. While we have somebody here, do we know what's going on? <laughs> is yeah, it really formal attire. Yeah, what? You can always take a tie off later. Come on, guys. Uh, but yeah, so it, to dress up. It's oh, okay. just a tie. Wait, wait, we, we, this tie. is no. This is a real question. <laughs> like there, we. No, we're, we, we, there's an internal so, conversation among maybe, some of us, whether it's black tie or a tie. The legal tech just, award. Yeah, or tie. a t-shirt with a picture of a tie. Yeah. So we're talking about the American Legal <laughs> Technology Awards. Uh, mm -hmm. That's going on on October the 9th in Nashville. So the night before the start of the Clio Cloud Conference. Uh, and my case is sponsor, Nikki. Clio is a sponsor. Uh, and my understanding is it is formal attire, but not black tie. Oh, all right. Okay. I got a message. Okay. We got a message that they were recommending or encouraging like glitter and cowboy boots. I, I don't even own those. And I'm, you know, I, I, I don't have glitter have and cowboy boots. going on. Some of us are going to tweak this a little bit. I don't know about this formal. All right. Thing. All right. No, I, I, don't, I don't do formal. Not being black tie uh, is is useful. I I yeah. had taken that as black tie, so I was I, like, I haven't I haven't broken my tux out in a while. So I, metal. I I did today. I broke it out today to make sure I still fit in it because of all of this. Yeah, Joe's wearing medals, and uh... well, not if I can't wear a tux, then I won't. Then I'll just like wear normal stuff. But I yeah. feel like black tie is flexible. There's a little flexibility mm -hmm. in there these days. Yeah, I hope there's a lot of flexibility, changing. like like black t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you doing black ties? I don't think so. I, don't, I put all I that like, away when I when I left the law firm. Right, I know it. I got even a tie is a challenge. Well, that, that, that's know. a side effect of working remotely, right? I mean, I don't think I can't remember last night I wore a suit. Like, I don't right. even, yeah. Wait a minute, Greg. You think I don't normally wear a clean T-shirt? <laughs> I'm offended by this comment. What? That's it. <laughs> Ban him from the show. No. He is banned. We are never inviting Greg. He, he is no longer my second favorite podcaster. <laughs> That's only only because Joshua is now my second favorite podcaster. All right. Well, uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll be back next Friday. Yeah, probably do it next Friday, and then uh, and then uh, we'll be able to report from Cleo. Maybe we should all get together and try and do something. Are you are you Nikki? You're not actually going to Cleo though, right? You're just going to be. I'm like, going to the um, legal awards show. I am not. Awards. I am. I am not going to CleoCon. Josh has invited me a few times over the years. Yeah, you're always welcome. Sorry, has invited uh, me a few go. times over the you years. Gotta go. You gotta go. <laughs> it's fun. Okay. Yeah. All it's right. fun. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll see a bunch of you there. And uh, until then, everybody stay well and. Joshua, congratulations again, and thanks so much for joining yeah. us today. Thank you. Yeah, and I want to thank everybody here who's who's taking the time to chat with me and make sure I know what the heck I'm talking about uh, <laughs> when it comes to all the, the great stories that you cover and the different facets that I learned from, from you. So thank you all for helping me make it to this point, to be perfectly honest. Well, all right, well, uh, mark your calendar for 10 years from now. You'll have you back on again. I look forward to it. All right. See you then. I so long. Bye, everyone.